Hello, and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about Ron Stallworth, the black detective that actually infiltrated the KKK. First of all, because I know someone's going to wonder right away how that would even be possible, we will get there in just a second. I find this to be a really interesting piece of history and I think Ron has some serious guts for doing this. And this also happened in Colorado, which is the state I live in. So it's just been something I've wanted to check out for some time. Also just quick trigger warning here, we're obviously gonna be talking about the KKK today. So if racist language and acts upset you, then I understand not wanting to be here for today's episode. I'm not actually gonna use the N-word, but some people may still find the language upsetting knowing that that's what's gonna be there when I don't say it. So with that being said, let's get into it. Who is Ron Stallworth and how did he infiltrate the KKK? Most of the time when I do these types of episodes, I have a wide variety of sources and that'll still be the case today. But the main source that I wanted to use is Ron's book and use his own words. Who better to tell us the event than Ron himself, right? In an interview, Ron explains that, my family moved from El Paso, Texas to Colorado Springs in the summer of 1972. I had an uncle who was a sergeant in the army stationed at Fort Carson in the state and my mother's sister was married to him. I had toyed with the idea of joining the El Paso Police Department who had lowered their age to enter the police academy from 21 to 20, as long as you turn 21 by the time you graduate. I was approaching 20 years of age, so that's when I started paying serious attention to a law enforcement career. When I became a cadet, I immediately decided I wanted to be an undercover cop because I don't like the uniforms. You put the uniform on the same way, you march in lockstep with one another. That's not my personality. When I first saw the narcotics officers walking around, these guys with long beards and long hair looking like San Francisco hippies, I liked the fact that these guys were actually cops wearing guns, carrying badges. I thought that was the neatest thing, to look like that and be a police officer. So I started a campaign to try and become a narc. Every time I saw a sergeant in charge of narcotics, I started questioning him about the job they did, how they went about doing it, basically asking him how to become an undercover cop. So I campaigned to become a narcotics officer. Every time I saw him, I said, hey, Art, make me a narc. And that became my standard routine. It became a kind of running joke between us. I'd see him in the department, he'd laugh and say, when you turn 21 and wear a uniform for two years, come see me. Race relations in Colorado at the time weren't good to say the very least. He was continually questioned. How would you feel if an officer called you an N-word? And Ron was frequently told the Colorado Springs Police Department would likely be hostile towards him too. He was the first black cadet they'd ever had. Yet he persevered all the same and was sworn in on June 18th, 1974, his 21st birthday. Ron received an assignment when Stokely Carmichael, the Black Panther leader was coming to town. So going undercover was something he genuinely enjoyed doing and wanted to do. Of course, Ron saw the massive opportunity to do so just a few years after being sworn in, in 1978. According to Ron, it was October, 1978. He was in the intelligence unit for the CSPD, the Colorado Springs Police Department. One of his duties was to scan two daily newspapers for any reports of information concerning any hint of subversive activity that might have an impact on the welfare and safety of Colorado Springs. Apparently, some people would put up ads for prostitution, obvious money schemes, and things of that nature in the papers at the time. I've got no idea why if you're doing something legal, you'd advertise it to the world, but this was the era before the internet, so I guess anything goes. Anyway, Ron saw an ad that read the following. 
Ku Klux Klan. For information, contact P.O. Box number here, Security Colorado 80230. The Colorado Springs chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. Please leave a message and God bless white America. Hello, this is Ron Stallworth calling. I saw your advertisement in the Colorado Springs Gazette. I'm interested in receiving some reading materials from you. My phone number is one. Now, obviously I'm not going to give out the PO box number because I doubt it leads to the KKK anymore. And I don't want someone to hear that and think it's permission to send mail there. Anyway, Ron naturally figured, hey, this is something that would have an impact on the welfare and safety of Colorado Springs, right? There was known Klan activity in the town of security. So Ron answered the ad. Ron says he wrote a brief note saying he was a white man interested in obtaining information regarding membership and he was concerned with N-words taking over things. Ron admits he made a massive mistake by signing his real name to the note, even though he gave the undercover phone number and unlisted an untraceable line and used an untraceable undercover address. Ron's reason for this, as he says, I was not thinking of a future investigation when I mailed the note. I was seeking a reply, expecting it would be the form of literature such as a pamphlet or brochure of some kind. All in all, I did not believe my efforts would have any traction beyond a few mundane auto-mailed responses. I believed this blatant placement of such an inflammatory racist ad was nothing more than a feeble attempt at a prank, and by answering it, I could see how far the prank would play itself out. However, two weeks later, Ron realized it wasn't a prank. A man named Ken O'Dell called and claimed to be a local organizer of the Colorado Springs chapter of the KKK. Ken asked Ron why he wanted to join, and Ron said he hated anyone that does not have pure Aryan blood in their veins. He used a list of slurs to describe black people and people of color that I am not going to repeat for fairly obvious reasons, and said that it was his sister that was recently involved with a black man, and quote, every time I think about him putting his filthy black hands on her pure white body, I get disgusted and sick to my stomach. I want to join the Klan so I can stop future abuse of the white race, end quote. And seriously, Ron should have won an award for this acting. But unfortunately though, as Ron explains, it wasn't exactly hard for him to think of those comments describing black people. He explains that he simply used the language of hate, a language that had been used against him for so long, but in reverse. It's kind of fucked up when you actually think about it that Ron was able to so easily get on Ken's good side because he was so familiar with racism that he could over the phone pass as a KKK wannabe. Ken warmed up to him pretty quickly and told him that they were planning a white Christmas holiday for needy white families, of course, because even charitable actions can be racist when you're the KKK. They were also planning four cross burnings. Cross burnings, if you're unaware, have been used as a form of intimidation against African-Americans and Jews. The practice dates back to the 14th century when in Scotland, tribes burned crosses as signaling devices. Now it's done at white pride rallies, crosses have been burned in lynchings, and it's just as a whole an extremely despicable act. Even though it's been defended as a form of free speech before, a number of states have banned them because this action is historically used to terrorize anyone that opposes the Klan. As Ron called it, this was terrorism, plain and simple. Ken wanted to meet Ron and have him join, and Ron, knowing he couldn't actually go in person, had his friend Chuck from the narcotics unit go for him. Thankfully, his Sergeant Ken Trapp was on board with Chuck being the face and Ron being the voice. As Ron states, this was to be an intelligence investigation whose purpose would be to learn as much about the growing threat of the Klan in Colorado Springs and Colorado in general, and to prevent any acts of terror that might result. Any time during the course of the investigation, we could have brought it to an end by arresting several Klansmen for misdemeanor offenses. However, this was not my objective. 
had these individuals strayed into the realm of felony offenses, we most definitely would have taken them down and brought an end to the investigation. Until that bridge was crossed, I was determined to follow the intelligence trail as far as it would take me and learn as much as possible about the Colorado Springs chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. However, not everyone was on board. Arthur, a narcotics investigator, said that Ken was sure to recognize he was speaking to a black man on the phone. Ron asked him what a black man sounds like, only to be met with silence. Another colleague answered this question and said, you know, shucking and jiving and saying, fuck you and motherfucker all the time. And first of all, that's ridiculous. But secondly, don't they know that's not the case if Ron clearly had a full-blown conversation with Ken on the phone already? Some colleagues insisted the ad was a prank and Ken was an angry man no one needed to worry about, but Ron was not convinced. And thankfully with Sergeant Trapp's support, the investigation was on. Okay, Ron, how do you propose to make this investigation? Well, I've established contact and created some familiarity with the Klansmen over the phone. I'll continue in that role, but we'll need another officer, surprise, surprise, a white officer to play me when they meet face-to-face. That's my point exactly. Chief, black Ron Stallworth, over the phone, white Ron Stallworth face-to-face, so there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? I believe we can with the right white man. We can do anything. After the chief was briefed on Ron's actions thus far, he asked if Ron needed any more manpower. Ron requested the use of two surveillance detectives to accompany him on November 9th. Chuck was briefed on everything thus far, including the cross burnings. Ron said he'd been listening to everything Chuck said on the mic he wore, so they would be on the exact same page. And while Chuck said it was the craziest thing he'd ever heard, he was in too. Thankfully, it didn't take long for Ken to start talking. The first thing of note that Ron realized was that when Ken said the army had placed him on leave because of absence because of the newspaper recruitment ad. Since the ad didn't have any identifying information on that, it wouldn't have been possible. If he was actually on probation for his involvement with the Klan, they must know something Ron didn't. The Gazette Telegraph also announced around this time that David Duke would be appearing in Colorado Springs soon. David Duke was a grand wizard of the KKK. David Duke has been described as perhaps America's most well-known racist and anti-Semite. According to the ADL, he pioneered the now common effort on the far right to camouflage racist ideas and hot button issues like affirmative action and immigration, successfully appealing to race and class resentments. He was instrumental in the Klan resurgence of the 1970s and was one of the first neo-Nazi and Klan leaders to stop the use of Nazi and Klan regalia in ritual, as well as other traditional displays of race hatred and to cultivate media attention. It's unsurprising that a guy like this would be a grand wizard. Now, there are other ridiculous sounding titles like Grand Dragon, Titans, Giants, Cyclops, you name it. I found a book online that explains the history of the Klan and where these names come from. And according to that source, The beginning of the Klan involved nothing so sinister, subversive, or ancient as the theories supposed. It was the boredom of a small town life that led six young Confederate veterans to gather around a fireplace one December evening in 1865 and form a social club. The place was Pulaski, Tennessee, near the Alabama border. When they reassembled a week later, the six young men were full of ideas for their new society. It would be secret to heighten the amusement of the thing. And the titles for the various offices were to have names as preposterous sounding as possible, partly for the fun of it and partly to avoid any military or political implications. Obviously the KKK expanded past this Confederate social club and became far more dangerous, extremist and condemnable. But I guess that's kind of, you know, the leader's name titles or whatever. And that's how that happened. 
When I talked about how the KKK was once an MLM before I remember seeing some speculation that perhaps they use those names to appear harmless when they were hiding evil intent and that might be the case why they still use them today, but it's interesting to know the history of these names regardless. Anyway, back to Ron here. The Grand Wizard David Duke was coming to town and I swear it sounds like the title of a children's book, which just goes to show how accepted these ideals were at the time. There were threats on Duke's life and I don't want anyone to think that he was like beloved all the way, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Of course, this being the KKK, their initial meeting didn't exactly go as planned. As Ken said, there was someone at the quick inn waiting for them, a man named Butch. However, rather than take Chuck posing as Ron to the inn, Butch said he would take Chuck to another location. As with any undercover meeting, it's extremely important to maintain control of the events as best as you can. In other words, not going off to some undisclosed location where Chuck's safety would be at risk. Chuck tried to reason with Butch offering to follow the guy in the car, but Butch wouldn't relent and said Chuck would either get in his truck and go with Ken or not see him at all. Not about to give up the mission, Chuck got into Butch's truck. I know these names are starting to sound really similar, but just bear with me here. And they were off to meet Ken. Ken was about five foot nine, stocky, 28 years old with a brown haircut, military length, and a slight mustache. The clan, according to Ken, had become his salvation after he'd once been shot by some N-words and his wife had been raped by several of them. Ken explained that he and some clansmen were placing the articles about the clan, like those about the Grand Wizard, and the clan was trying to make their prejudice known. By being in the press, they were hoping to gain sympathy with the public, attract new members, and legitimize their cause. And this is something I find incredibly worrying. I mean, obviously anything the KKK does is worrying, but promoting their grand wizard as if it's such an honor that he's gracing Colorado Springs with a visit to paint themselves as sympathetic and a worthy cause to the public. It's massively concerning when someone as discriminatory and downright evil as the KKK has access to the press. Now, Ken insisted that the media had made them look bad before, so they were trying to change that. And I don't think it's all that hard to make the KKK look bad, but you know, sure they do that to themselves, but we'll just keep moving along. Ken said some incredibly disturbing things. According to Ron, he stated, what these N-words do needs to be known, talking about how Butch's wife had been repeatedly stabbed by N-words. Someone had apparently burned a cross on a suspect's lawn to send her a message too. Ron later checked police reports and none of them confirmed this incident whatsoever. If Butch's wife had been stabbed, then she didn't report it to the police, a highly unlikely prospect, says Ron. At this first meeting, Ken said they planned to burn four crosses up on the hills in Colorado Springs and make a real presence around town. Each cross was going to be 17 feet high by eight feet wide, and they'd be covered up with rocks a few days before it was time to light them up, and Chuck would be able to join them as long as he was sworn in by them and Ken determined there were no Jews in Chuck's background. And with that being done, the applications were completed, dues paid, and this was moving right along. But before we get any deeper into this investigation, it's important to recognize the state organizers of the KKK for who he was. Fred Wilkins. As Ron states in chapter five that Fred Wilkins was at this time, a firefighter for the town of Lakewood, as well as a grand dragon or state organizer for the Ku Klux Klan. He writes, Fred was a constant irritant for the Lakewood city fathers because of his racist political persuasion, which he frequently evoked in media interviews. Everything he did was within the law, just barely in some instances, but legal nonetheless. Numerous media articles reported on his extracurricular KKK activities. For example, in the February 1978 Denver Magazine article titled The Invisible Empire Unmasked, the KKK's master plan, Wilkins announced the Klan is the hope of the white race in Colorado and the nation we want to give white Americans the opportunity to join us. 
we're going to go out into the community and let people see the new resurgent KKK. I don't think I really have to explain why it's incredibly messed up for someone whose job is community service to also be a member of the KKK. How can Wilkins say that being involved in the KKK is his first amendment right and it won't interfere with his job when his job as a firefighter is to help a community in need? Do you think a KKK fireman would put the same effort into saving a black family as he does a white family? He claimed not to be a race hater, just someone who loves his own race, but that's some absolute bullshit. Now, I've said it here before and I'll say it again. If you're going to be an asshole, be an honest asshole. Pretending the KKK is all about just loving your own race for white people is nothing more than pure bullshit. As part of the investigation, Ron called Wilkins and told him that he was a new Klan member and wanted to learn about the cause. Ron writes, he promised to send me several issues of the Crusader, the Klan newspaper. I also asked about my membership card and he said if I didn't receive it within the next two days to get back to him and he would personally contact the national headquarters in Louisiana to push through the process. I once again asked about the alleged impending Colorado Springs visit of David Duke in January. Wilkins confirmed Duke's arrival as tentatively around the first week of January. He helped to have a hundred robed Klansmen for the proposed march. He asked about a recent Gazette Telegraph newspaper interview given by local organizer, Ken O'Dell. He wanted to know my personal reaction to the interview. I told him Ken expressed the goals and objectives of the organization very well, and I thought it would be well-received by the public. Wilkins explained, the hub of the Klan plan evolves around political activity. The goal was to get Klansmen elected to political offices at all levels of government throughout Colorado. If they could not find qualified Klansmen to run for elective office, Wilkins said, we will also support non-Klansmen who share our philosophy. If a candidate also wants our public endorsement, we'll give it to him or we may support him with financial aid. The important thing is to get into the right kind of thinking into government. He mentioned how well the N-words organized themselves politically and that we needed to do the same to protect what we had. Again, I don't think I have to explain why the KKK wanting to get involved with the government is concerning, especially considering all the recent stuff with QAnon and what we've been seeing unfold. It's also worth mentioning the fact that the KKK did actually find a qualified Klansman to run for office, apparently. It was their very own Grand Wizard. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that racial discrimination in hiring or jobs and promotions is wrong. I think the best qualified person should get the job, promotion, or scholarship. And I think that's true. Not only is racial discrimination wrong when exercised against a young black person, I think it's just as wrong when exercised against a young white person in our society. David Duke, the grand wizard of the KKK, was also a member of the Louisiana House of Representatives from the 81st district from 1989 to 1992. The thing is, which is kind of interesting, is people have started to look at the conspiracy theorist Marjorie Green and wonder how the hell she got into office. Or perhaps not wondered how, but been extremely disappointed and thought that it's a horrible sign, an outlier situation, that no one can be this outspokenly awful and bigoted and gain office. But let it sink in that the actual head of the KKK was in office. Just think about that for a moment. A KKK leader ran for the House of Representatives and won in 1989. David Duke, a former Grand Wizard of the Klan, won a seat in the Louisiana legislature. David Duke has been trying to shed his image as a cross-burning Klansman for almost 10 years now. This, this is not the issue of this campaign. It's not a Jewish uh, Christian uh, issue or, or controversy. It's not a black-white controversy. I'm an individual standing up for equal rights for everybody. 
He did persuade a little more than half of the voters. And this is why voting in local elections is so important. Because when you don't vote, you might elect the opportunity for someone who is very much unfit to be in office to hold said office. David Duke, a noted Holocaust denier, the head of the KKK, won an elected office position. He would apparently tone down his anti-Semitism and dodge questions about his neo-Nazi and Klan past in order to get the vote, according to my source. In 1990, Duke announced his candidacy in the Republican primary for a US Senate seat. In the end, he raised an astonishing $2.4 million and won 607,391 votes, about 60% of the white Republican vote, but lost the primary. Undaunted, he ran in 1991 against incumbent Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards, a scandal-dogged Huey Long-style populace. Although the race was considered too close to safely call weeks before the election, a weak performance by Duke in the second debate and political work inducing the famous pro-Edwards bumper sticker, vote for the crook, it's important, helped tilt the balance to Edwards, who beat Duke by 22 percentage points. The amount of support this guy actually had is disturbing. He even formed an organization called No Fear or National Organization for European American Rights. So I guess it's a pattern with KKK and former KKK members making it sound like they're just celebrating or ensuring their own rights when in actuality, they're trying to take away the rights and freedoms of others. But I digress. There is a lot I could say about David Duke. And honestly, he should have his own episode because there's so much information about the guy. But the point here is to say that the KK were genuinely involved with politics around this time. And Ron Stallworth was walking straight into the lion's den, trying to get the worst of it all. In December, however, everything changed. According to Ron, on December 1st, a significant development occurred in the Odell in Me. He called Chuck to announce a Klan meeting at his home and explained there were two purposes for the meeting. One, Butch and his wife would be leaving the area, returning to their home base of California. And two, he, Ken, was leaving the army and returning to his home in San Antonio, Texas, sometime in January, 1979. As a result, the Klan would need a new local organizer. Ken told Chuck that he had been impressed with me throughout our various talks and thought Chuck would make a great local organizer. I have to laugh at the absolute ridiculousness of it all. A black man was about to become a local organizer of the KKK. And I wish I could go back in time and see the look on Ken's face when he found this out. Naturally, the greatest problem with this was that undercover officers aren't allowed to entrap people. You can't use forms of deception to gain information, but you can't persuade an innocent person to commit a crime that they weren't predisposed to commit. So if Chuck or well, Ron became the local chapter leader, then he simply wouldn't be there witnessing crimes, but he would cross a line into entrapment. Chuck had to decline and claim to work for the public works department within Colorado Springs city government as a reason. City government jobs are fantastic cover occupations apparently. Anyway, at the next Klan meeting in early December, a few things were discussed. One was a possible lawsuit against the Gazette Telegraph paper for reneging on running their ad for a number of days they agreed upon, introducing the KKK into the Colorado State Penitentiary, recruiting new members and electing a new local organizer. They insisted that Ron, actually Chuck, should be the new leader. And once again, Chuck said he wasn't sure he could devote the necessary time required to fill the duties, though he thanked them for the high honor of being chosen. Ken insisted Chuck be leader anyway, and even showed him a list of names, proving to both Ron and Chuck that the operation was larger than they realized. Another incredibly worrying aspect to this, as we mentioned, is the fact that the KKK was trying to recruit people from within prison. Now, there's a few reasons I and Ron believe they were doing this and a few ways they went about it. First of all, the people within Colorado State Penitentiary may be more violent and more willing to commit violent acts. 
I'm not saying that every single prisoner out there in jail for a violent act is going to keep doing that, but generally speaking, we can agree that there's going to be some incredibly violent people in prison, right? Secondly, and this one is incredibly important, the KKK was feeding them propaganda. Again, this is before the age of the internet and these people were in prison. They couldn't just go do some fact checking and you know take a look at the articles and be like, hey, this is bullshit. I'm not saying this is an excuse to believe anything that you hear that these prisoners aren't responsible for their actions and clearly they are, but I can absolutely see why they would have been the perfect targets for the KKK. Ron wrote in chapter six about this and said, on December 11th, I paid a visit to Guy Thomas, an investigator with the intelligence unit at the Colorado State Penitentiary in Cannon City, Colorado. I wanted to discuss Ken's plans to expand Klan membership within the prison. I alerted him to the fact that the Klan would be attempting to recruit inmates via Klan literature mailings. Thomas informed me that a Klan newspaper, The Crusader, had been confiscated from an inmate originally from Weld County, the Northern area of the state bordering Wyoming and the home of the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. This inmate, according to investigator Thomas, was now claiming Klan membership and had recruited a fellow inmate. A third inmate was receiving the newspaper directly from Klan headquarters in Louisiana. A fourth inmate had been receiving letters from a member of the National Socialist White People's Party out in Arlington, Virginia. Investigator Thomas promised to keep me informed of any further developments inside the prison system. Not only are we seeing how the KKK wanted to appeal to the public, but how they wanted to appeal to people that couldn't fact check them and may be prone to violence. Naturally, Ron wasn't about to slow down on the investigation. And if anything, word began to spread that he joined. A local cop bar he attended across the street from the courthouse was where officials congregated after work and asked to see his membership card and brought Ron a drink for being the only black man crazy enough to join the KKK. To seem more legitimate, Ron even recruited a friend to join him and apply, a man named Rick Kelly, who went by the alias Jimmy. At a meeting with Jimmy, Ken began talking about the Posse Comitatus, a name that means force of the country, but at this time was another significant right-wing ideological extremist group. Ron states, some members were practicing survivalists and were active in the formation of the armed citizen militias of the 1990s. Like the Ku Klux Klan, they embraced anti-Semitic and white supremacist beliefs that the federal government is under the control of Zog, Zionist occupied government, part of a Jewish conspiracy. Ironically, Ken said that he didn't like the Posse members because he believed they were too radical and violent. And I shouldn't be surprised that even they hated other radical groups. There's, There's nothing more than twisted, hateful people after all. Posse members at that time stated that they wanted to blow up queer bars in town, but the KKK said they were trying to be non-violent at that time, apparently. The meeting ended with Jim becoming a new Klansman and Ron was yet again thrown even deeper into Colorado's KKK scene. Ron began looking into the history of the KKK in Colorado. He learned that, quote, by 1923, it was estimated that the Klan in Colorado had approximately 30,000 to 45,000 members, half of whom lived in Denver. There were also chapters in Cannon City, home of the state penitentiary, Boulder, home of the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and Pueblo. Once established, the Klan made a grasp for political power. They took control of the state's Republican party and elected virtually all of its candidates by the 1924 elections. By 1925, the Colorado State Senate and House of Representatives were filled with a majority of Klan members elected through the Republican party, end quote. Armed with more information about the KKK's history, Ron said that his conversations and friendship with Duke only grew. He asked if Duke was ever worried about a smart Alec N-word, calling him and pretending to be white. Hilariously, Duke said he could always tell when he was talking to an N-word. Ron wrote, when I asked him how he could tell, he said the following, 
Take you, for example. I can tell you're a pure Aryan white man by the way you talk, the way you pronounce certain words and letters. And yes, he did say that to a black man. Uh, I asked him one time, aren't you ever afraid of uh, some smart alecky uh, N-word person calling you pretending to be white, wanting to gain information on the Klan? Mm. He said, no, I never worry about that because I can always tell when I'm talking to one of them. And uh, I, I, I said, how can you tell? He said, by the way they pronounce uh, certain words in the English language, uh, he said they don't talk like educated white people like you and I. Eventually in early January, Duke arrived in town and Ron of all people was assigned to be on his personal security detail. Ron pleaded with the chief that placing him in this position may compromise the case, but the chief felt that the threats surrounding the KKK rally were serious enough to warrant the special case. And so Ron was their security that day. He even got a photo with Duke, Wilkins, and Ken. The man behind the camera was of course Chuck, the man pretending to be a KKK member named Ron Stallworth, while the real Ron Stallworth, a black man, posed with them. Duke was apparently especially angry when Ron put his arm around him for a photo and nearly assaulted him to get the Polaroid picture out of his hands. But Ron told him, if you touch me, I'll arrest you for assault on a police officer, don't do it. And he just had enough sense to stop himself. Horrifyingly, Ron's investigation did lead to some incredibly valuable and worrying information. Two of the names of people that Ron knew to be Klansmen were later revealed not to just work for the military, but for NORAD. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, they control triggers for nuclear weapons. So, you know, that's a little bit fucking concerning to say the least. Ron described the situation as this. I opened the book to the list of names and like the OSI agents did in my office, the Colonel scrolled through his index finger down the list. He suddenly stopped, picked up the phone and dialed a number. He turned his back to me and the agents as he spoke in a hushed tone to whomever was on the other end of the line and then hung up. The Colonel then turned his attention back to me, made small talk for a few moments, congratulated me on the success of my sting of the clan and service as a police officer, shook my hand and then left the room after speaking privately with the two OSI agents. Okay, what's going on? I asked. The OSI agent stated that two of the names on my list, which were never identified to me, were NORAD personnel with top security clearance level status. Even though he wasn't found out, Ron's investigation nevertheless came to an end shortly after this, when Ken continued to insist he become the local chapter's leader. The chief simply shut it down. I know it's an anticlimactic ending, but that's kind of how it ended. I don't know if the chief was worried, if this became too big for him or why, but all we can really do is speculate. You'd think that given this incredible intel, he'd be thrilled to have Ron working on the inside, but that's simply not what happened. According to Ron, I questioned the chief as to why he wanted to take this approach. He explained that he wanted no indication that a Ron Stallworth Klansman ever existed, and that applied to a detective Jim as well. To this end, the chief told me to destroy all evidence that existed that showed the Colorado Springs Police Department had been conducting an undercover investigation into the KKK. He did not want the public to ever know that the CSPD had undercover officers who were Klan members. I argued vehemently against the chief's logic and Sergeant Trapp tapping me several times on my knee out of the chief's line of sight, the moral, ethical, and legal grounds of the law, as well as the departmental policy guidelines. I also reminded the chief that everything was done with Sergeant Trapp's knowledge and his authorization. I argued that taking the steps the chief was advocating implied that we in the intelligence unit had done something wrong when in fact we had not. I do think it's a bit of a shame that almost a year's worth of hard work just kind of poof, you know, ended just like that, just up in smoke. I understand why the chief may have been concerned that they didn't have criminal charges, but it's not as if they had nothing either. And as Ron says, if this was investigative work and was approved, then they did nothing wrong. 
In recent years, Ron's story has been told more and more and received national attention and more when he did an interview back in 2006, shortly after he retired. Now, Ron's interview was with the Deseret News. So I'm going to use them as a source here. I know I've got mixed feelings about it and they've run by the Mormon church. So it does kind of put me on edge, but it's kind of the only place this was. According to the Deseret, Stallworth still carried his Klan membership card signed by David Duke as a memento. The article reads, He called the Klan investigation one of the most significant investigations I was ever involved in because of the scope and the magnitude of how it unfolded. The investigation revealed that Klan members were in the military, including two at NORAD who controlled the triggers for nuclear weapons. I was told they were being reassigned to somewhere like the North Pole or Greenland, Stallworth said. The Klan investigation isn't the only time Stallworth has been mistaken for a white guy. He'd been contacted by academics about his scholarly research on gangs. One such academic said he was so impressed that a white Mormon in Utah could write such an impressive work on black gang culture. Stallworth said he laughed and explained that not only is he not white or Mormon, he started his college career in 1971 and remains about two and a half years shy of his bachelor's degree. Stallworth started to work on gang activity for the Utah Department of Public Safety in the late 1980s. He wrote a report that led to the formation of Utah's first gang task force, the Gang Narcotics Intelligence Unit that involved the Utah Department of Investigation and the Salt Lake City Police Department. Based on what was going on at the time, I knew about the LA gang problem, he said. Utah gang suspects were telling us they were Crips from California. Stallworth said of his work in Utah, it's his investigation of gangs that he's most proud of. It's had a lasting impact first and foremost on law enforcement, he said. And Stallworth just seems like the type of person I'd want to sit down with and just talk to, honestly. Uh, To go undercover with the KKK as a new black cop in the 70s is insane. And that's not to speak silently of all the other work that he's done too. He's served as chairman for the Black Advisory Council. His story has been made into a movie. He testified before Congress on gangs and violence, and he's even served as a gang intelligence coordinator. Yet Ron doesn't believe that we can ever truly eradicate racism, only control it. Racism is part of human nature and it doesn't go away, he says. It's a sad fact of life, but all we can do really is grow and do better and infiltrate the KKK to be sure they don't have nuclear codes. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you learned something new because I absolutely did. And if you did enjoy it, of course, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. I release new episodes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So thank you all so much for making it to another episode. I love you all and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.